people are going to be writing about us for the rest of our lives probably, and after we're dead. So I intend to either confuse the issue so much they never knew what was going on, or to try and keep shoving out bits and bits. So as whoever is bothered to be looking at it in the future, the people that really know will sort out, you know, they'll know what was going on a bit. There's a lot of books about the Beatles and a lot of theories, and I try not to read them. And whenever I do, the first thing is like, oh, that's wrong. Everywhere you go, trying to find out any little bit of dirt that they can write about you. Beatles is Beatles, that Beatles, Beatles, Beatles. It doesn't matter, you know, what, what people say. You can't live all your life by what they want. Another Kind of Mind. A different kind of Beatles podcast by Another Kind of Mind. Welcome to A Mistake in Many Ways, How Lennon and McCartney Accidentally Broke the Beatles. This is episode three. In our last episode, Paul sank into a debilitating depression that plagued him for several months and has haunted him ever since. We took a look at the multiple factors contributing to Paul's condition and how it may have predisposed him to deflect or ignore any outreach from John. Meanwhile, after three and a half months of being publicly cagey about the Beatles, John began to change his tune and telegraph a slightly more cooperative point of view, suggesting there might be room for negotiation after all. When we left off, Paul had just met with George and Ringo to record some finishing touches for the Beatles track, I Me Mine. And John had sent Paul a loving postcard from Holiday in Denmark to heal their rift or possibly woo him back. We have now reached the second phase of the trial separation. Are you in fact going your own way with Yoko these days? Well, each Beatle's going, doing his own thing at the moment, you know, and it's like, it could be a rebirth or a death, you know, and we'll see what it is, you know, but it'd probably be a rebirth, you know, for all of us. In episode three, John proposes a new creative solution for the Beatles, rebirth. We'll unpack this big cosmic concept, first by taking a quick look at Instant Karma, the song which first presents this concept, and then we'll show how this rebirth idea continued to preoccupy John in his later life. Finally, we'll share several contemporaneous statements from John, which underline his commitment to the idea of rebirth. What is John trying to communicate to Paul at this moment in February, 1970? Stay tuned for our analysis. Daphne, would you say that this episode has three acts? Yes, I would say that. The first act is instant karma song discussion. The second is the concept of rebirth as articulated by John in 1980. Third act is John and Paul's psychodrama extraordinaire extravaganza. Yes. Their contemporaneous madness. Yeah. Full of quotes, full of new ideas, 
so much support it'll make you <laughs> if you like research no you are in for a treat we got receipts and receipts and receipts our receipts got receipts Instant Karma is a song that came to John in a rush. The inspiration for the writing of the song came quickly and he recorded it very quickly. John described this song kind of coming to him all at once in a rush of inspiration. Some of the other songs that he described the same way are Nowhere Man, In My Life, Across the Universe, Number Nine Dream, just like starting over he's saying i don't care what name goes on it meaning it could be beatles it could be plastic ono it could be john and yoko yeah that's consistent with what he said in december like listen i just want to i just want to get my shit out mm-hmm. right away and i'm not super hung up on what the name on the thing right. is and it's all yeah. on apple so it doesn't matter it's me plus whoever right and i think that some that these are some of his best songs like i think this is a good process an instinct for him he said and with this song we wrote it in the morning recorded it and remixed it and got it out in a week <laughs> here on the stage which is pretty fast moving i want it to be like that you know i want to be able to put it out as it happens you know i, I write songs about what's happening to me that moment and i want it to be out that moment and i don't care what name goes on it you know you know, I write songs about what's happening to me in that moment. He's literally saying, this is what I'm going through in the moment. This is what's happening to me, not this is the universal truth that was bestowed upon me. <laughs> yes. This is the general message for mankind that I was gifted from on high. No. He says, this is what's happening to me. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I want it to be out that moment. Mm-hmm. And I don't care what name goes on it. Nope. Was he ever so eager to get something out that fast? Well, yeah, I actually, think- for the past year, and he, he talks about this, he, he yeah. has been very eager to get things out. Like Ballad of John Yoko, boom, he wanted it out right yeah. away. Yeah, I mean, I, I know that's, that's definitely a thing that and culture has been going on. But it seems to me that in terms of like direct quotes that we have about it this was especially urgent and if it's for paul then obviously we know why, we know why. yeah because yeah. this is time sensitive <laughs> yeah hot take alert i think instant karma is adorable <laughs> really <laughs> i do like i know that john is sort of he's not being super sweet like he's kind of trying to browbeat paul into Mm-hmm. coming back but at the same time i i sent so much exasperated fondness in it yes i would agree with that yeah it's definitely like a here's a bite of a reality sandwich kind of thing you know you, yeah. you need a you need a slap upside the head right now but you can be affectionate when you're doing that that's true 
Well, I mean, let me be clear. It's not that I don't think there's love and affection in here. I think there's a a borderline terrifying level of love and affection in the song. I think the desire to have him back is palpable. Let me just say that. Let's look at it a different way. Okay. Okay. If this is supposed to be a deep song about world peace, then it's kind of a big disappointment that it's really just about sure browbeating his best friend Uh, (laughs) however if it is a song about browbeating his best friend to come back and join the band he did a great job with it because the song exists uh, independent of this battle that he's going on yes with paul yeah it's a great song on his own to be taken on its own and the idea of instant karma, like literally just those two words is sort of like a self-evident concept, right? So absolutely, just the idea of instant karma, people hear those words and they they go, oh, I, I know what that means. You're going to get your comeuppance immediately. Exactly. Plus, I love that because karma starts with a k sound, it makes you think of instant coffee. That's great awesome job john and if you're not familiar with the john and paul situation then you can just appreciate it on its own as like a catchy you know wall of sound atmospheric you know kind of rah-rah song (laughs) even though yes it is quite blatantly about paul (laughs) well it's like when we talked about john's 1973 song i know i know as being for Paul. And you made the point that it has all the same hallmarks as how do you sleep to identify it as being for Paul. Mm -hmm. And instant karma is the same. People don't pick up on that because I think it flies in the face of the narrative that John kicked Paul to the curb and never wanted him back. So why would he write a song to him? Yes. Okay, so let's start with the first line. We have a really helpful quote from Tony King. Tony King recalls talking to John about this song. He asked him if he believed in instant karma, and John said that he did, and that Maxwell's Silver Hammer was the first song that they'd made about that. Good old Maxwell's Silver Hammer. So that was the first song that they'd written about instant karma. This is Mm -hmm. the second song. And so let's take a look at the second line in instant karma. Instant karma's gonna knock you right on the head. Yep. Bang, bang. <laughs> Pretty soon you're gonna be dead. I mean, that is uh, sometimes seen as a reference to Paul is dead, which it could be, but it's also a clear call and response with Maxwell Silver Hammer. There is the here, there, and everywhere reference. Why in the world are we here? Why on earth are you there when you're everywhere? Come and get your share. Which, by the way, doesn't make sense when you're everywhere. It makes no sense. No, it's just, he's just shoehorning in. Yes. And everywhere. Of course he is. Yes. And then he, but that, that last line really brings it home. Actually, come and get your share is pretty funny. Like, that's a good line. I do like it. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. Uh, Again, hard to make that about anything except for this current battle. He's inviting the human race to come and partake of their birthright oh. of love. So yes, that is a possible interpretation, but I don't think that's actually what John is saying. He's trying to entice Paul back with promises 
of the riches Alan Klein is surely going to win for them. He definitely yeah. believes in that. Yeah. Yeah, he does. I do love John singing on this. Better get yourself together, darling. I know. I feel like I he did sort of put his Elvis on a little bit. Elvis. Here's another incredibly Paul pointed lyric. <laughs> Who on earth do you think you are? A superstar? Well, right, you are. I do. I think that's, I really do think that's cute and sweet because even though he's saying, who do you think you are? He immediately like backtracks in the middle of his own argument. Like he undercuts his own outrage by saying a superstar. Well, okay. Bad example. Cause yes, you are a superstar, but <laughs> I'm still mad. It's like an aggressive pep talk. <laughs> right. I do think that's kind of sweet, but we all shine on. Yeah. You're not that special. And you're wrong in this particular instance. And you need to get over yourself. Okay, so yeah. the, the shining on, I take I take as a reference to let it be. Hmm. When the night is cloudy, there's still a light that shines on me. Shine on till tomorrow, let it be. I wake up to the sun and music. I have always taken that lyric to mean no matter how dark it gets, there is still a ray of light that's applicable to anybody, right? Like no matter what, there will always be some light in the darkness. Mm -hmm. I have never <laughs> interpreted that as Paul saying, I'm super special and I'm touched by the gods because I hear songs in my dreams, you know? Has, does me neither. Well, that's what I get from this lyric though. Oh huh we all shine on well get over yourself i mean maybe that's not what he's saying but well but i i don't know i feel like there's a way to to say to someone look you're not you're not the only one that can be sort of hostile or it can be like yeah we're there with you we we see the light we hear the music Let's get back together and hear it together. But who on earth do you think you are? Well, right, you are. But so are we. Yeah. Like, okay, well, you're not wrong. However. Yes, that's kind of a fun, cute way to say it. Yes, it's a little, it's a little wink. Yeah, we all know. Yeah. I mean, the, the only thing that I don't like about it is that we all shine on. I just, I hear it as a direct reference to Let It Be. And John was such a fucking asshole about Let It Be. Well, he really was. He yeah, what's really that was. About? What is that about? I don't know. Let It Be is, you know, up there in the top 10, probably most iconic Beatles songs of all time. And people play it at their funerals and shit like that. Like, it's a big deal of a song. And if it's just, you know, straight jealousy, I can kind of get even more behind that. It's just jealousy, <laughs> seriously, because that, mm -hmm. I get it. That's fine. They're jealous of each other's songs and, you know, that's kind of normal. But I feel like he's turned Let It Be into something sinister in his mind. Yeah, or, I mean, when he said that it was Paul's attempt to write Bridge Over Troubled Water, which had not been written. Which, had, which hasn't come out yet. <laughs> Let it be. That's Paul. Nothing what about can the Beatles. You say? 
Nothing to do with the Beatles, no. It could have been Wings, right? Yeah. Except it, I mean, that was the one that everybody said was the statement after Paul. Oh, I've no idea. See, I don't know what he's yeah, thinking when he writes that. Be. He probably right. heard a gospel song. No, I think he was inspired by Bridge Over Troubled Waters. Uh -huh. That's my feeling, although yeah. I have no, nothing to go on, you know, that he, want, he wanted to write a Bridge Over Troubled Waters. Oh, John. So dismissive. Yeah, well, it's not just dismissive. It's implying that if it's not plagiarism it's at the very least not original <laughs> again bridge over troubled water wouldn't come out for another year so just for the record this claim is totally unfounded oh, John. <laughs> but could you imagine if paul was like oh strawberry fields i don't know i think he was trying to write mr tambourine man or <laughs> or better better yet like I think he was trying to write, are you experienced, <laughs> you know, because he's a year off. Oh, it's, it's, it's laughable. Well, he actually says, I don't know what he was thinking when he writes that. Nothing to do with the Beatles. <laughs> what is happening in his brain? I don't know. Does Maybe... he not know that it's about Paul's mom? Or does he know and feels the need to be dismissive of that for some reason like he sounds annoyed he sounds annoyed that he doesn't know oh you mm. think he talks to me about his dreams anymore maybe it's just this entire sentiment of the song that is upsetting to him because if he doesn't want the Beatles to end and then here's a song from Paul saying let it be like he's resigned to their fate especially if he didn't know at the time that that's what paul was singing about john was just angry and maybe surprised to discover oh i guess paul had already given up at that point i'm not going to actually talk about my feelings i'm just going to be mean about the song because i don't like it now so glad i could provide harmony on the goodbye john song right but but you from from paul's point of view what, what do you mean i sang on don't let me down yeah why would you not sing on that together like what <laughs> i did it for you i'm just trying to figure out where this comes from from john's point of view and i would did like to do it for you yeah he's like I mean, sitting there mocking it yeah wouldn't bother me that he said that at the time because when you're rehearsing something playing it a million times in a row like you just sure. but the fact that then they put it on the album. And then there's this bizarro quote from John about Let It Be. Yes. I think, yeah, what? There is something. Yes. Like in and of itself, it's not that it's, you know, whatever. No. You goof around yeah, in the studio. All. It's not a big thing. Totally. But yes, it's like you right? have multiple levels yeah. of uh, hostility towards the song. I know, but why? Maybe John associates it with his very tender painful memories of of the recording of that time for them the yeah episode. i okay. mean can't ever imagine john sitting down and playing let it be in abbey road after 1969 yeah that definitely seems like that would be too painful i mean we know that he saw let it be once when it first came out and it made him cry so i doubt he ever watched it again that's true. I think the takeaway <laughs> is that there's some emotions involved. We can't say 
precisely what they are, but they're probably it's probably all that stuff. Back to instant karma. For me, though, we all shine on. There's still a lot of positivity in that because it's like, you know, it's not over. We're all going to shine on forever. On and on and on and on. I see that as them like together. I feel like Paul is part of the we. It's up to you. Yeah, you. <laughs> I mean, there's absolutely a non-Paul interpretation. He's, he's saying to the world, you know, it's it's on it's on all of us, including you, um, the faceless listener. But if you th- like, if you accept the premise that it's for Paul, I think it's really cute because, of course, Paul is the one stalling on yeah. the Alan Klein issue. As a, as a message to Paul, it's actually a really interesting line because he's saying, this is in your hands. I've stated what my opinion is. I know, mm-hmm. you know, you know yep. where I stand. This is now up to you. Mm-hmm. It's funny to me as well, because obviously Paul would be like, who, me? <laughs> so the fact that Jeff is like, you, yeah, you, oh, Cartney. Yeah. You know, oh, like he's having a little invisible back and forth with yes, exactly. Yeah, that actually is pretty cute. Mm -hmm. He's like, I've been having this conversation with you in absentia for the last three months. Mm -hmm. Yeah, knowing you, you'd probably laugh. Yeah, (laughs) yep. If John was correct, if Paul was just sort of you know being a being a baby yeah and a little too far up his own ass <laughs> yeah so if john's read of paul was correct then does it feel more affectionate to you um i think so it's still pretty yeah. rough and this is the other thing that makes me probably think it's a little warmer than you do is the fact that i think john genuinely believes that paul will be better off well i do believe that he thinks it will be easier on all four Beatles. Mm-hmm. and that in the that, long yep. run yeah that they will all benefit mm-hmm. um but i don't necessarily think that he is unaware of the fact that paul might do better for himself mm. if he does not chain himself to the rest of those three and alan klein uh-huh. well that's true like i think he does fear that like maybe the eastmans are saying you know, this could work out better for you. See, that's the thing is I think, and I'm sure Klein has told them this, that like Paul's being greedy or like the Eastman's are being greedy. Yeah. Which obviously I think Paul just wants to not be in business with a manager who lies to him, bullies him and plays him against the other three band members. Of course. Which makes him a huge diva. I I know, but... (laughs) Yeah, and the, and the fact that John can't or won't see that, it does definitely suggest that John thinks that Paul really needs to be taken down a peg. That he that he deserves to be less, yeah, you know, represented, less valued. Well, uh, you know, again, I think he's got Alan Klein whispering in his ear, like, "Who's the boss, John? 
I get it. I know that you're the main Beatle. You're the one who started all this, right? I read all the interviews. I know that. You were the leader from the beginning. Mm-hmm. You're the man. Paul's a squeaky wheel. Paul didn't like Brian Epstein either, did he? Right. I mean, he's saying all the right things to John. Yeah, I think John is relieved and to just sort of abdicate his responsibility and just and just give Klein his proxy and not think about right. it too hard. Alan Klein's not going up to John and being like, hey, John, do you mind if I call Paul the reluctant virgin? I think that's a great nickname. Can I, do you mind? Can I go do that? Do I have your permission? Of course not. Of course, yeah. It's depressing. So in Instant Karma, there are two lines about laughing laughing at fools mm-hmm. like me mm-hmm. and laughing in the face of love being laughed at is kind of a theme why is he bringing this up here and what in the world is laughing in the face of love what does that mean what in the world are you thinking of laughing in the face of love is the face of love his love for Yoko or his love for Paul? Either, maybe, both. Because I do believe that John is mad at Paul for not respecting his relationship with Yoko, at least at first, as much as John thinks he should. And, you know, it might be to the world a bit. Yeah. And he might be lumping Paul in with that. It's like, you know, the, Be- the Beatles, a.k.a. Paul, should have known better. I thought Paul was better than the rest of the world. Yeah. I mean, couples who are like, we are the well, first couple who has ever been in love. Like, Correct. Those couples are annoying. No one deserves to have their love exalted above all other loves. Like, that yeah. is ridiculous. So That's silly. I mean, what is more egotistical? The idea that you and your girlfriend are the the queen and king of love? Who needs to come down off of what high horse? What are you even talking about? Well, of course. And that's, well, that's, that's John about, not just about him and Yoko, but about his whole life. Why don't you see that I'm a genius? I'm God almighty. Well, and he, he except for the times that he's nothing. As much as I love defending John and taking his point of view, which Mm -hmm. I do, (laughs) to give him a little constructive criticism (laughs) for a moment. Yeah. He is really high off of his own bullshit right now. Yes. He is feeling himself way too much. Well, I mean, there's no in between for him. Yeah. And maybe it's part of why he has to go so hard sometimes is because he doesn't know how to regulate it. There's no escape for him. There's no escape from the, I'm a piece of shit. Exactly. Unless it's to say, I am God almighty. Correct. And I'm sympathetic to that because yeah. feeling like you're a God um, <laughs> is objectively going to feel better than thinking I'm a piece <laughs> of shit. That's, that's a no brainer. Right? Exactly. Yeah. And we don't want him to feel like he's a piece of shit. So, no, you know, we we're like, okay, well, it's so he goes overboard and now he thinks he's a God and he's, you know, yeah. being a little bit of an asshole. Okay, fine. 
Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, it's when he weaponizes it against other people and it ends up getting other people hurt that it's, you know, yes. it becomes a problem. Yes, and 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 he's not a god, and so therefore it's okay right. to criticize him for that. Like that's okay, right. you know, yeah. and it's okay to say um, this period in which he is criticizing Paul for you know being an egomaniac who can't get over himself is literally John's most egotistical <laughs> egomaniac period. So it they is. they both have huge egos. Correct. This song is so hilarious in that it is so arrogant and yet it is criticizing someone for being arrogant (laughs) exactly that's kind of kind of beautiful actually it is and it's very john he's the king of like projection and transparent overcompensation (laughs) for his own he is the poster child for that that's true actually yeah yeah Yeah. classic john it is it is so what if laughing in the face of love refers to paul laughing at john's love for paul then that would be very ouchy like if that's the case then i dearly hope that that's a metaphor Mm -hmm. and not something that actually happened oh fuck yeah yeah (laughs) although i could see it i could see it happening too not in a malicious way but in a uncomfortable nervous yeah yeah if that were true then it would make sense of john's rougher uh treatment i'm not gonna win him over with more sappy shit that's true yeah never you know that's not doesn't doesn't respond to that yeah and i'm not gonna embarrass myself again Mm -hmm. but i also can't give him up right laughing at fools like me he's definitely accusing paul of laughing at him yeah laughing at his love for somebody he meant it enough to mention it twice in one song it's true i don't know does it make more sense that john's saying how dare you laugh at yoko and i or how dare you laugh at me saying i love you god what the fuck paul john would have every reason to be incensed by that he would it would make perfect sense if paul just short-circuited when john said something like that because as we know he can't say i love you to his old children without or his wife <laughs> crying right so there's something in him that is really weird about those words well and and he's on stage every fucking night of his life apologizing yeah exhorting other people don't be like me yeah children don't do what i have done tell people you love them i'm sure the guilt has haunted him but it also you know potentially ruined this relationship and in turn kind of ruined his life for a while yeah well it definitely messed him up for life well yeah and it It, messed john up enough that john made paul's life a living hell for a few years yeah if john is still reeling from whatever happened between them it makes sense of why he would behave so ruthlessly in the divorce meeting yeah because he wants to hurt paul as much as paul hurt him Mm -hmm. 
and he thinks Paul deserves it. Yeah, I mean, you can kind of see his logic, actually. Yeah. Instant Karma was not just a catchy song title to John. It's a concept that really meant something to him and that he returned to later in life. So we're going to go deep now and explore the grander meaning of Instant Karma in relation to John and Paul with a series of interview clips from John in September 1980 to Playboy magazine. And please forgive us, one of these sound clips is pulled from the lost linen tape radio series and it has music underneath i couldn't get rid of that so the context here is he's talking about his separation from yoko in the mid 70s and why did they get back together he's saying look the point that we got to in our relationship whatever the seven-year itch those things are natural and they're cyclical and they happen in all relationships. And what I learned was the two options there are give up, get somebody new and start over again with somebody else. Or I could work on the relationship that I've already invested all this time into mm -hmm. and get over that natural hump or whatever it is and mm -hmm. work through it. So Paul isn't specifically name-checked in this portion, but later in the same interview, he circles back to the concept of relationship cycles and cosmic relationship laws when he is discussing his relationship with Paul explicitly. In this clip, even though he's responding to a question about his marriage with Yoko, he's speaking abstractly, not necessarily about what caused their particular separation there seems to be certain cycles that relationships go through and the critical points are different parts of the different cycle you know different points on the if there's a straight line the different points you know mm -hmm. and the the sort of bit the the new way of talking is like well you know why have a relationship we just stop and get another one mm -hmm. but the comic joke about that is that any new relationship Presuming you're lucky enough to find a new relationship of any mm -hmm. where near the relationship that you're giving up mm -hmm. or exchanging mm -hmm. or walking away from or have destroyed by inattention or inadvertent or mm -hmm. selfishness or whatever it is, mm -hmm. that you have to go through the same thing again anyway. You reach the same point. He doesn't explicitly say, <laughs> I've reached that point with Paul or I reached that point with this previous relationship. So when it happened with Yoko again, I knew from past experience that A, that it was to be expected and normal. Mm -hmm. And B, that carrying on was definitely an option and maybe the preferable option, in fact. The relationship that you've given up or are exchanging or walking away from, or have destroyed by inattention or inadvertent or selfishness or whatever it is. So he's definitely covering his bases here. Maybe he's just listing hypotheticals. But 
I find it striking that he includes possibly having destroyed a relationship by inadvertent <laughs> because it doesn't agree grammatically. That's what makes it stand out. But once you think about it, the idea of accidentally destroying yes. a relationship is pretty intriguing in light of what we're discussing here. And he says exchanging. Well, that's a that's something else too. If you're if you're lucky enough to find a new Yoko anywhere near the old Paul that you had, you know maybe he's just throwing out possibilities. It's true. He can he can. People do just talk sometimes. Yeah, of course, of course. But in case it means anything, inadvertent and exchanging are both potentially noteworthy. What's most intriguing, though, and what really caught our attention is that John then brings up instant karma. He says with a fair amount of passion that this relationship theory, and specifically the idea of pushing through a rough patch, is what he was trying to say with instant karma. It's like uh, instant karma. Was my way of saying it's right. You know, it happens about a cup of coffee or, right. or or anything. It's not just some big cosmic thing. It's that as well. But it's also a bit yeah. small things like your life here and your relationship with with the with the person you want to live with and be with. Yeah. That there are laws governing that relationship too, and you can either give up halfway up the hill and say, I don't want to climb this mountain. It's too tough. Or I'm going to go back to the bottom and start again. Now, <laughs> John wrote Instant Karma in February of 1970. Who, who is he at a crossroads of his relationship <laughs> with? Yeah. It's not Yoko. No. Is this, is this about Yoko? Is this about like trying to get Yoko to come back to the fold, to come back There's, and get her share? No. I, it's hard for me to imagine a less correct take than that. Right, right. If he if he is writing this about a relationship in 1970, there's really only one read. Yeah. When Paul's name does inevitably pop up in the conversation, John goes on at some length about how their relationship also followed this pattern, how it also came to a crisis point. And strikingly, he then ruminates over the possibility that they could have and maybe should have gotten through it together instead of breaking up. The early stuff, the hard days, night period, I call it, in the early period, was, was the early, what I'm equating yeah. it to is the sexual equivalent of, of the beginning of a relationship of people in love. And the, the, the Sergeant Pepper Abbey Road period was the period of maturity in the relationship. And, and maybe had we uh, gone on together, maybe something more interesting would have come out of it. It would not have been the same. It would have been a, a different thing. But maybe it wouldn't either. Maybe it was a marriage that had to end. You know, some marriages don't get through that, 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 that phase. He's explicitly saying he's not sure whether they actually needed to break up. He called their breakup a phase. It was a phase their marriage went through. The breakup wasn't the end, it was a phase. <laughs> yes. 
which is pretty, it's pretty big. He says, maybe it had to end. Some marriages don't get through that phase. Meaning, of course, that some do. Yes. And he is conceding that maybe it was for the best. And uh, maybe what like was meant to be. But maybe. But maybe <laughs> not. Maybe they were supposed to be together forever. And if they had pushed back up the hill, it could have been different. Yes, but also more interesting. Right. He doesn't say, maybe we could have squeezed out a few more hits. He says, maybe something more interesting could have come out of it. Yeah. Like, even better. Like, okay. Like, we had the honeymoon period, the falling in love. We had the Sgt. Pepper period. We lived together in <laughs> domestic bliss or yeah. lysergic bliss or whatever. Yeah. So he's saying, like, we had that honeymoon period, the horny phase, the the hot for each other phase, or however he put it, and then the Sgt. Pepper period. Um, but we never got to move on to that quiet contentment empty nest stage the retiree stage in the country in a cottage in the woods by the water exactly with our dogs that we walk into town or whatever his dream is and maybe if we had it would have been possibly even more interesting yeah i mean that's what he's fucking saying like there was a whole stage of our relationship left that could have been rewarding and fruitful remember they were estranged fiancés they never made it across across the threshold something out there for them yeah that is something that john telegraphs repeatedly later in life going forward to the rest of his life that there's it's not finished yeah neither one of them ever closes the door on the other whether people recognize it or not they never gave up they had a piece of each other's heart that no one else had in a marriage or a love affair when the seven-year itch or the 12-year or whatever these things that that you have to go through there comes a point where the marriage either collapses because they can't face that reality and they go seeking what they thought they should be having still somewhere else now i get a new girl it'll all be like that again i get a new boy but for all all married all all couples it'll all, all be the same again you know, but what you what you lose is what you put into that relationship. In a love affair, when the seven year itch or the twelve year itch, okay, just for the record, the twelve year itch is not a thing. Okay. Um, John and Paul were together for twelve years. Oh shit. From 1957 to 1969. Yeah, but I'm sorry, but the 12-year itch is not a thing. At least not in 1980. That's interesting. Maybe it's just a coincidence. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, maybe. So he's likening 1975 and his Mm -hmm. moment of truth with Yoko Mm -hmm. to his moment of truth with Paul in 1970. How wild is it that he just uses the word law? To me, like that's, that's not really a John word, law. I found that really revealing too, knowing that John thinks that Paul is violating 
the cosmic laws of the yes. universe regarding love like that's mm-hmm. really intense <laughs> that's a deep yes. resentment right there that goes beyond he hurt my feelings yes yes <laughs> you have violated the cosmic laws of the universe you're denying our fate you know this is our destiny how yes. dare you yes. give up on us how dare you refuse the quest i don't know if that <laughs> speaks to john's supernatural sort of erratic fanciful belief system right magical thinking or the intensity of his love for paul or just like his out of control romanticism of everything in his life or all of the above yeah yeah it is intense but it but it does make him no it does make him noble to fight for it this whole struggle is always about love. Yes. John feels he's fighting for beauty and truth. And I think he's fighting the best way he knows how. Oh. Yeah. He's like the little knight with his little sword. It's <laughs> just he... trying to do what's right. I know. How's Paul not going to fall for that every time? Yes, and at the same time, not be able to explain it to the to the world. Yeah, just like you people, you don't understand, John. You don't go understand. away. Yes, like you Please stop talking. You don't know talking. what you're talking about. <laughs> yes. Okay, let's also talk about that weird little tell of John's where he says, <laughs> "With the with the person you want to live with and be with." I love when his when he gets adamant about something and his voice shifts yeah. off like that. Uh-huh. The person you want to yeah. live with and be with, not your wife. In fact, he doesn't even say with your partner or with your no. boyfriend or girlfriend, which would be an inclusive way. Like if he just wanted mm-hmm. to be inclusive, which I yeah. don't think that's what's happening. But um, right. if he wanted to, he'd say, uh, you know, your life here and your relationship with your partner or spouse uh-huh. or boyfriend or girlfriend he says person you want to live with and be with yes, which the t- person of unspecified gender and relationship in case any of our listeners are thinking but how could that person be paul <laughs> they wrote together <laughs> they didn't live together we have something to share john references living with paul in 1971, during the famous St. Regis interview with Peter McCabe and Robert Schoenfeld. And he points to lack of cohabitation as one of the reasons he'd never write with Paul again. Yeah, so what exactly is up with this cohabitation thing of John's? I don't know. Let's, let's see. Remember, this is September 1971, at the peak of their public insanity. So the interviewer asks, if you, meaning you and Paul, got, I don't know what the right phrase is, back together now, what would be the nature of it? And John says, well, it's like saying, if you are back in your mother's womb, I don't fucking know. What can I answer? It will never happen. So there's no use contemplating it. Even if I became friends with Paul again, I'd never write with him again. There's no point. I write with Yoko because she's in the same room with me. Yoko says, and we're living together. And John says, so it's natural. I was living with Paul then, so I wrote with him. 
it's whoever you're living with. He writes with Linda. He's living with her. It's just natural. Okay. Okay. All right. Okay, John. So he doesn't say we were close or we were together all the time. He specifically says living together multiple times. That's the yes. that's the, the the clincher here. We're not living together. And he compares it to their current marriages too. Not yep. like we were working closely like shipmates. Sure. Or or Paul's favorite army buddies analogy. <laughs> right. He says we were living together the same way we now live with our respective wives. Yes, who we write with as a direct outgrowth of the fact that we live together. And it's only natural, which I guess means like you should write with your chosen partner that you love. And if Paul and I are not that to each other anymore, what is the point? It's a hell of a quote. First of all, there's the whole mother's womb analogy, which is quite an analogy. I guess the tough guy read of that would be like, that would be like going back in time so far. Yes. That would be so regressive. I might so... as well be a zygote. It's so regressive. Mm-hmm. Yes. Um, or what it sounds more like to me is like being back in your mother's womb is like the safest possible yes. safe yes. space that you can imagine, yes. right? Yep. And he just came out of primal scream therapy, which is, don't they go, don't they take you back to the womb or something? I think so. Yeah. So to me, oh that, my God. Right? Like just off the chain yes. wild thing to say. Like, what you mean back to that warm safe space where we sat on the same bed and stared at each other's eyes fuck you i don't Mm -hmm. want to go back there why would i what's the point oh like oh my god what did he do to you honestly and you know i don't know how people have typically interpreted this quote but he is not calling it a marriage of convenience although i've heard you know so-called beetle experts propose that interpretation yes yes marriage of convenience yeah absolutely okay they chose to be together they joined their fucking names together as teenagers they were not randomly assigned to be writing partners Mm, by like a lottery no and they called themselves the forever lee brothers and john is very explicit that he chose paul as his partner until his dying day like literally on the day he died he told dave sholin I chose Paul as my partner, first and foremost. Now, George came through Paul, and Ringo came through George, although, of course, I had a, a saying where they came from, but the only, the person I actually picked as my partner, who I recognized had talent, and I could get on with, was Paul. Okay, so here John says, I was living with Paul then, so I wrote with him. It's whoever you're living with. okay but because john and paul unambiguously like definitely chose to be together that would make their songwriting an outgrowth of their relationship not the other way around i mean i don't know that i even believe that necessarily that john and paul's songwriting partnership was a fortunate byproduct of their desire and choice to be together sure um Although that idea is pretty outrageously romantic. Well. <laughs> right? Like that's how we that's how we got the Beatles. Because John right. and Paul fell in love, right? Like that's yeah. pretty amazing and sweet. But maybe John didn't mean to say that, right? <laughs> or 
or or didn't realize he was saying that i don't <laughs> I, I don't i don't know i mean it, it's possible these words just fell out of him and he didn't even know what he was saying but um but, i mean he specifically says he writes with yoko because she's in the room with me and again he chose to be with yoko she didn't just right. randomly appear <laughs> in the room right right so in both cases that would make paul and yoko loves first and musical partner second right i'm just i'm just yep. following the logic of what he's saying yep anyway and then again that the the idea of natural like trying to write together if we are not true life partners you know living together is unnatural and fake it's like the exactly. Party myth yes you know? we'd have to force it yes that tells you what that partnership meant to him yes yes the proximity and closeness and physical closeness to the potentially freudian level of <laughs> yeah being together in the womb that is how john sees the relationship the beatles aren't just a rock band to john they're his family maybe paul can accept that what they had was beautiful and deep and real and can reconcile that with the fact that unfortunately it is also over now whereas for john if something doesn't last forever then that must mean it was an illusion or a lie or a myth and if that's the case then it must now be purged from his soul and shunned for all eternity we can see from john's reaction after the breakup what a huge loss it was to him because mm -hmm. you don't act like that when you've lost something unless you thought it would be a part of you forever which we know that he did that they both probably did yes and like importantly i think everybody else thought that they they would too like yeah. there's there's that that magazine interview with aunt mimi in like 1971 where she's like <laughs> i don't know what john and paul are even arguing about but i uh it can't be that important she said what this dispute is all about i just don't know and of course i've never asked john about it it is his business i remember once he asked me <laughs> what i thought of paul's first solo album and i said i thought it was all right i love by the way the idea that mimi is like playing the mccartney album at home I remember once he asked me about what I thought about Paul's first solo album, and I said I thought it was all right, and asked him what did he think. He said in a rather offhand way, okay, but he didn't elaborate. <laughs> I rang Paul and asked him what was wrong, because it seemed strange that they had fallen out, but he said, it's okay, Mimi, don't worry. Clearly, however, she does worry, because it is hard to see the happiness of those early years clouded by dissent and misunderstanding. I really hope they become friends again because I'm sure they have more to agree about than to argue over, she says. So first of all, what about like Mimi calling Paul? Right, I was just thinking that. What about Paul taking that call and being like, I don't even know what to say to my own brain about this. 
Yeah, right? I got nothing for you, Mimi. Just try not to worry, I guess. And and that's wild because it's not like she's calling. I mean, I maybe that's the undercurrent of why she's calling up is she she's she wants to talk to Paul about like, is John okay? Sure. But that's the not even the stated reason of her call is she's calling us about it. Are you guys okay? Yeah. Which, yeah. Uh, you know, says something about what Paul means to that whole family. Mm-hmm. Well, it also gives the appearance that she talked about it more with Paul than with John. Because she says, I haven't asked John about it. It's his business. Yeah. And he wouldn't what say about- what it was. Yeah. Well, yeah. Sean said the same thing like two years ago or whatever. When they put out that give me some truth box set hmm. about how do you sleep? He was like, I don't know what their argument was about. Hmm. Which, I mean, listen neither one of them is going to go you know even if they did know they wouldn't go blabbing to the paper true but i mean it really does suggest that maybe like this is really private for john yeah yes and they know it's something like they know that there's more to the story but they're not they're like i'm not going to comment on it yeah so if we're talking about the idea of rebirth or a new phase of the relationship what would that look like you know what could that be because hmm. i don't think in 1970 that john thinks he and paul are going to live together again right. right yeah like he he definitely is committed to yoko as we discussed earlier paul and john have definitely chosen their new lives and have fully committed to their wives so what could John be suggesting? It has got to be a different version of John and Paul. Because the, the, the old one is unsustainable. Yes, yeah. We know that the original John and Paul relationship was an obstacle to true intimacy with anyone else. Yeah, that is a real thing. <laughs> yeah, and almost everyone in the Beatles circle has commented on it. Yes. Yes, about the the Beatles being closer to each other than they were to the, any of the women or the wives until Yoko and Linda came along. Yep, and that when other people were around, they felt locked out of that special foursome. Yes, so that's a that's a real thing. But I think the reason John's so excited and energetic here with Instant Karma is that he thinks maybe they can figure out a mature version. Mm-hmm you know the the later stage of their relationship that final <laughs> stage the, men, the menopause phase the menopause stage which we'll talk about later yeah after the period of the maturity or the the empty nest phase or whatever it is i just i would like to know what that looks like yeah i want to know what's going on in john's head because something is there <laughs> <laughs> that's right so it does make sense that at this point they either have to fully evacuate each other's lives which they never really do of course they remain obsessed <laughs> with each other until the end of time they do oh my god they do or they have to find some way to rebuild their friendship in a way right. that doesn't interfere with their marriages because john isn't giving up yoko and paul isn't giving up linda and Yoko and Linda are not the same girl. We know because Paul told us. So again, I would love to know what that looks like. How has John figured out a way to make that work? Because they, you know, they haven't been able to make it work so far. 
but you know maybe that's what john meant in 1980 maybe it was a marriage that had to end not because they had run out of gas but because they couldn't evolve or devolve into just parallels again yeah they, they couldn't downshift yeah yeah i mean they tried so hard to do that in the 70s yeah for more on that check out acom's series pizza and fairy tales well i guess maybe john didn't realize that maybe he thought they could come to the studio together and like make out with each other with their eyes all day and make great music and then go home to their wives at the end of the day yeah well if he thinks that he's grasping at straws because i don't really think it's a good idea for either of them but based on subsequent behavior i think that that's more hurtful to john than it is to paul i think paul finds that more nourishing than john does i think yeah john finds it unsatisfactory okay well also here's my question is like how is that any different from what they were doing during get back or abbey road (sighs) coming in and making eyes at each other and then going home George Martin always insists that things specifically between John and Paul, like between all of them, but specifically between John and Paul, were a million times better during Abbey Road. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like better than Get Back with the eye fucking and the deep throating of the microphones <laughs> and, you know. The dainty hair touching. Uh, I know. There are pieces of the puzzle that we do not have so what i'm saying is like isn't that exactly what they're trying to get away from maybe now that he's sort of in the hot seat of oh i'm not enjoying this six month of six months of not having paul in my life at all so maybe he's thinking i'm willing to try it again and maybe it'll work out better than it did in the early years because now instead of cynthia to go home to Cynthia, who doesn't satisfy and intrigue me as deeply as Paul, now there is someone I can go home to after being with Paul that is equally satisfying and intriguing. So saying bye to Paul at the end of the day isn't a wrench anymore. That's the same thing they've been doing for 18 months. I mean, Yoko's been there for 18 months. I know, I know, but maybe now at this point, A, now that he's got sort of the fear of God in him of like oh wait i've now experienced six months without paul and i don't like it so i'd be willing to try again i don't know i still think it's it's playing with fire absolutely what if the rebirth is going to be like instead of the beatles or maybe the beatles is something that they only do every two years or every 18 months or Mm -hmm. once a year or something like that meaning it's no longer their nine to five and maybe that way absence can make the heart grow a little fonder and also maybe the rebirth is we cut the quantity of time we spend together but we increase the quality Hmm. Mm -hmm. so we have a dedicated amount of time but it's exclusive i mean i'm just making shit up here but like like they rent a house somewhere yeah they have a family reunion every couple years 
Yeah. And like super love on each other and have a great time. Yeah. And maybe it's private. Like maybe that part is not mm. without the women there or something. I think maybe Paul would switch that. If he's like, I'd rather have, you know, three weeks alone with you rather than sure. like seven months of you surrounded by all these people. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that could that could definitely be. But what, okay, so, but, but what I described the um, three weeks up in a cabin or whatever, mm-hmm. like, isn't that, doesn't that sound more like the 1980 scenario of starting over? Just for the sake of argument, you know, I'm sure uh-huh. there are people out there who are unconvinced that, that starting over um, was a proposition to Paul. But sure. just for the sake of conversation, mm-hmm. does that idea fit more with the starting over idea that like post 1980, they can do a thing where they, they have a few weeks alone? Yeah, I mean, I, I think that could certainly be what they were going to planning on trying. Or yeah, that's so in maybe. John's head. If, it, yeah. if it's, if it's what's in John's head in 1970, then it makes sense for him to come back to it in 1980. Cause I sure. think, you know, obviously by Janoff period, he's abandoned that. He's like, that was a fucking stupid idea. I'm gonna set that idea on fucking fire. Yeah, for sure. But it's in, it's in 1980 that he's circling back to it. Mm-hmm. Maybe yeah. like in September of 1969, he was like, enough of this shit. Yeah. We can't keep doing this forever. And then maybe after a few months, he was like, okay, wait, wait. No, no, no. <laughs> I, I didn't realize that that meant I wasn't going to get to see you anymore. It's absurd to think that we just have to give each other up. That's insane. Like it's our fucking destiny. We dreamed this into existence. And it came true. Like yeah. literally our dreams came true, Paul. We made that happen. Yes. We share dreams. Yes. And you know it. So of course we're going to get past this. Yeah. And if we have to do a ceremonial burying of our <laughs> of our yeah. of our pre-marriage lives, that's fine. Uh-huh. Let's figure out a way to be reborn and go into the next phase. Yeah. I want a recommitment <laughs> ceremony right now. <laughs> yes. Linda can take photos, I guess. <laughs> At our vow renewal ceremony, if you must. Yoko will preside. Yeah, right. <laughs> she will bind our hands together. And she will do the music. <laughs> yes. Via her vocalization. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe John has no master plan for what the next phase is going to be. Only the idea that they'd figure it out together. Whatever it was, John wanted to start again. According to Derek Taylor according to John Green, and according to John himself. He saw some way of continuing. He genuinely felt that there was a way forward. That's a thing about the Beatles, is that they they reinvent themselves many times over the course of their career. So John and Paul have reinvented themselves a few times. They have reason to believe in their own ability to do that. If you are Paul and you hear instant karma, uh, yeah. how does this make you feel? I don't know. 
I really don't know. I don't think anyone has ever, ever asked Paul what he felt hearing Instant Karma. 10,000 books written on the Beatles. Nobody's asked him. Yeah. I mean, honestly, the, things, the thing that comes to is just like, just tired. And I mean, there's got to be, there's got to be some spark of like, well, at least he still cares. But also, just, ugh. Exhausted? Yeah. Yeah. And like, you know, I, I don't want to be feeling these things anymore. I wish I could just not deal with any of it. And also it would hurt to hear like, oh, you really, you did make a good single on your own without me. I mean, even apart from the song's messaging mm-hmm. and meaning. Yeah, that's um, true. The traditional read is always that Paul heard Instant Karma and finally got serious about McCartney and wrote Maybe I'm Amazed at a Competition, <laughs> which I think is a really simplistic, but I kind of take the, you know, the main point of that argument, which is that, yeah, it, I'm sure that it did spur something in him to hear a great mm-hmm. song out there. But I mean, <laughs> it being a direct cry to you personally that's going to be hard to separate that from the song too yep so there's no there's there's not really any way for paul to be objective about the song right i said in the last episode that i think paul at this moment is thinking john doesn't love me anymore i think paul is feeling discarded by john and really hurt by john's behavior so in that atmosphere I can't imagine that Paul would hear this song and be enticed, really, because there's no, I'm sorry, no, I love you. There's definitely a come on back, mm-hmm. but I think Paul needs tenderness right now, not tough love. I just think it's a, a, a miscalculation, another miscalculation from this period on John's part. Yes. And maybe if John had known what a dire state of mind Paul was in, he would have been more sensitive in his <laughs> messaging, like we saw he could be in Get Back. Mm-hmm. But at this point, he pretty clearly thinks Paul is just being stubborn, or at best, that Paul is worn out by all the business wranglings. I don't think he realized, he still doesn't realize that Paul needs to be reassured not reprimanded and maybe that's a function of him still being fairly sure that paul paul will come back he always does you know i i don't have to worry that he never will but i'm a little annoyed that it's taking so long so chop chop paul i agree because He's sort of treating him like 1963 Paul or 1960 Paul and maybe shit that John has has pulled in the past and gotten away with, you know, maybe he's like, we need to go back to that. How do you feel if you're John and you put that out and get crickets? Well, that's the that's the real rub. Yeah, that's got to drive him insane. I would feel awful. You put out instant karma. And Paul puts out an album singing about how lovely his wife is. Mm-hmm. The lovely who? What the fuck is this garbage? Yeah, there's no messaging to John 
in McCartney. Nope, just in that, just in that little insert. <laughs> right. But yeah, that would be hurtful too. Like if I'm John and I get that that album and I play it and I'm like, it's not a fucking thing about me on here. I, you know, I'm yeah. sure he was angry about that and just hurt. Yeah, disappointed. He might have just chalked it up fairly to Paul's tendency to kind of avoid discussing certain issues if he wasn't in the mood to you know how they say hmm. if paul doesn't want to know about something then yeah he, he doesn't, doesn't want to know yeah that's right so <laughs> yeah maybe that's why he was like this is nothing nothing real on here <laughs> yeah yeah could be if you if you really cared you'd have a bunch of angry pissed off songs on here paul mm-hmm. not, not this stupid ass you know <laughs> baby wife bullshit yes it's shocking what an upbeat album it is actually but uh, i mean is it it's paul it it just it just goes to show that he's well what it goes to show is that he's different yeah (laughs) and like he's built different he uses music to lift himself up it's not the other way around you know Mm -hmm. yeah yeah, because I, I definitely feel like he's still going through it at that point. <laughs> okay, so we've spoken about the greater significance of instant karma and how we believe it encapsulates the struggle that we think John currently is in with Paul, whether Paul realizes it or not. <laughs> In 1980, looking back in retrospect, John referred to this instant karma moment, this trial separation period, as a phase in his relationship or marriage with Paul, a hurdle they failed to clear. Not that they necessarily couldn't get past it. He says maybe they could have, but for whatever reason, they didn't. Now, with that in mind, we're going to return to 1970 and listen to what John says at this very pivotal moment in John and Paul's relationship. John gave a number of interviews to promote Instant Karma. Most of these are with Seen and Heard on February 6th. We can hear good old David Wigg on some of the tapes. Um, I have another snippet that is also dated February 6th, but is probably not the David Wigg interview. Um, I'm assuming John did several interviews that day. And... Finally, we'll read aloud some quotes from a magazine published on February 28th, so presumably conducted in February as well. So let's get started. How much are you seeing at the moment of the other Beatles? Uh, well, George was on this on the session for Instant Karma, so he's and Ringo's away, and Paul's... I don't know what he's doing here. At the moment, I haven't a clue. Where did you last see him? Uh, before Toronto. When was it? I'll see him this week, actually. Yeah. Well, so um, if you're listening, <laughs> I'm coming round. <laughs> when did you see him last? Before Toronto. Okay. No. <laughs> <laughs> we know that Toronto was the time that John decided to quit, and we know that John knows that, right? Because he he told us that many times in this same era. Yes. He always dates the moment that he decided to quit to Toronto. Well, he's already told 
Ray Connolly that just two months ago in yes. December. And then he remembers the sequence of events again, 10 months later, and Lennon remembers. <laughs> but what? He just forgot it randomly here in the middle? <laughs> in February, at the very moment, he's making public overtures to Paul? Coincidentally? No. No. No, no. So he's not, this isn't a matter of him confusing the dates. He's not like, oh, well, I saw him in October, but I forgot it was before Toronto. No, he says before Toronto when I decided to quit. <laughs> so he's like, I haven't seen him since I had that fleeting thought that I'd never <laughs> said aloud. That's right. <laughs> oh, yeah. I mean, look, honestly, like the most surface read is that John has selective amnesia or has done too many drugs and he simply is too busy to remember the divorce meeting and so he's just forgotten but I cannot believe that he doesn't remember and that it wasn't extremely important and I think he knows what he's doing so to me he's saying erase Mm -hmm. that that didn't happen yes and maybe even with a bit of and if you want we can never tell anyone about it Oh, yes. I understand. I know John is bad with dates. I'm bad with dates. Yeah. But this is such basic cause and effect. Yeah. Like he's erased the divorce meeting because there's no way that it's in his mind. He's like, oh, yeah, I told Paul I wanted a divorce. And then I went to Toronto and decided I wanted to quit eating. Like, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Like <laughs> that's not how, how cause and effect works. Exactly. <laughs> oh you you want me not to tell anyone that I want to leave how about this how about we never tell anyone we even had the meeting where I said that I wanted to leave oh we'll just we'll just delete it we'll just delete it never happened honestly like that's such a sketchy proposition though because it did happen and it means that he can pull it out at any time too Mm -hmm. yeah and you know he will right you can't just pretend that didn't happen and nope not even paul i think especially because there were witnesses i mean that's a huge part of the reason why it was such a terrible moment yeah and so if john is doing that simply to cover his ass like the private conversation with ray Connolly in december of 69 he says hey ray right i've decided to leave the beatles but don't don't tell anybody don't print it i know you're a reporter but Now, if you're giving John the benefit of the doubt, you're saying John wasn't allowed to say anything in public. He's just honoring the promise that he made Alan Klein and Paul, right? Mm -hmm. Because now all of a sudden he's honoring Paul's wishes. He's just such a fucking great guy who plays by the rules. He can't make a statement. John's hands are tied, but this is proof that he's spiritually left the band and that he really wishes he could say something aloud, okay? Mm -hmm. Or, you know, a slightly more cynical version is, okay, or he's covering his ass. Oh, totally. Yeah, if anything happens down the road, he can say, no, 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 no. I have witnesses. I told the people on the plane on Toronto, right? Mm -hmm. And I told Ray Connolly in December, which John does say. Now, again, why would you mention that if you're John? What is the point of saying, oh, well, I told Ray Connolly in December. It's like, you did that so that you could cover your ass. Or he was actually hoping Connolly would publish it. Maybe it's possible he expected Connolly to not respect his off the record request. 
And you could interpret that as John being pro-breakup, just like he's always said. Well, you could if you want to be consistent in the, you know, John meant the breakup Mm -hmm. and was lying the whole time because he does claim that after the fact. He's like, oh, why didn't you print it? You know, like, because you explicitly told me not to, (laughs) right? (laughs) So, but I mean, he says that even if he meant it after the fact, it could have been with remorse, like, because he's so angry that Paul fucked him over from you know john's point of view sure um in april that he's just like god damn it i'm stupid i should have fucked him first so right yes he he could feel that after the fact Mm -hmm. but that doesn't mean that he meant it at the time because at the time he says don't print it sure and it's interesting that he only says this to ray Connolly after paul has told life magazine the beatles thing is over so however you slice it he seems to have been going back and forth at that time i agree with you i think he probably was going back and forth in december at least i think his change of heart doesn't occur emphatically until after the new year but Mm -hmm. i definitely think him telling a reporter in confidence you know and like that Mm -hmm. you know they can't publish the only real reason to do that is to cover his ass and that's fine too. It, John is allowed to cover his ass, okay? Because as we know, Paul does end up stealing the headline, you know, regardless of whether you think he did that shit on purpose or not, he does mm-hmm. end up doing it. So, you know, you can absolutely make the case that John was justified in doing it because as it turns out, it did serve him right. And that he's justified to be paranoid about it because- sure. It is a possibility that Paul might pull a switcheroo on him. Sure. Well, he does in the life interview, I feel. My point is that him saying that to Ray Connolly, we can't look at that as if it's in a vacuum because Paul has already. Yes. Again, even though no one picked up on it, which is mind boggling. Yeah. Doesn't mean it didn't happen. Like it did happen. (laughs) Right. Yeah. And I'm sure, I'm sure John noticed. As we said in episode two, if John genuinely wants to leave and is only delaying announcing it because Klein has asked him to and he thinks it's more convenient, once Paul says it in November, there is no reason for him not to follow up unless there is at least a part of him that does not actually want the breakup. So yeah, maybe John is suggesting that they keep the divorce meeting between themselves, keep it in the family, and Paul, just come back already so we can work it out. (laughs) What happens in Apple stays in Apple. (laughs) And I think he's definitely talking to Paul directly because then he just like in within the same breath, he turns around and says, if you're listening, I'm coming around. I'm coming around whether you like it or not. (laughs) Scale on that wall. (laughs) That's right. That's right. Can't believe we have a photo of that. Thank you, Apple Scruffs right if there wasn't photographic evidence of that that would be on the pile of the most derided and mocked anecdotes so outlandish as to not be believed well there are so many things about them honestly that are (laughs) that are completely unbelievable and then Mm -hmm. you find proof of them you're like Mm -hmm. yeah Mm -hmm. i believe that that sounds like them what about live appearances? They're rarer and rarer, aren't they, really? What are your plans? I don't know. 
I've done more live appearances in the last year than I did in the last five. Yeah, but what about the Beatles altogether uh, as a group? Soon as they're ready, you know, we had half the Beatles on again <laughs> at the Lyceum Ballroom. That was George and me, but we also had Delaney and Bonnie and uh, millions of people. Seventeen-piece band we had on. It was a great experience. Uh, it should be like that, you know. If we were doing that and all the Beatles wanted to come, it'd be great. Then there'd be no great thing about, oh, the Beatles are coming back on stage. and Like they expect sort of Buddha and Mohammed to come on and play. I keep saying that, but that's... That's the fear the Beatles have, you know, that's including me as a Beatle, about performing. It's such a great, so much expected of us, mm. you know, but you see George has been on tour with Bonnie and Delaney playing, and I've been drifting around playing. It's just, playing isn't the hang-up, it's going on as the Beatles that's yeah. the, the problem for us. Yeah. So, okay, John. So playing as the Beatles is too much pressure, and that's the main problem, the main hang-up between you. And so wouldn't it be great mm. if you could perform, though, without those expectations? A smaller venue, perhaps. Under a different name, perhaps. That's a brilliant idea. Isn't it? If only someone had pitched that <laughs> idea. <laughs> Yes. So John is describing at length, at pretty great length, uh, exactly what Paul had pitched in the divorce meeting about playing smaller gigs, uh, maybe showing up as a surprise, going under a pseudonym. Yeah. So as to take the pressure off. Um, there's no two ways about that. That's what John is saying. That's exactly what he's saying. I mean, I, I don't know what other interpretation there can be yeah. really yep to anyone who's like no john wants to do that but without paul no he literally says if we were doing that and all the beatles want it to come mm -hmm. on that would be great yeah oh he says he says beatles like six times mm -hmm. in this quote and he, and Inclu he said including <laughs> Including calling this big pressure and describing that that is the fear the Beatles have, you know, including me as a Beatle. <laughs> <laughs> yes, me, John Lennon, a Beatle of the Beatles. <laughs> Rhythm guitar and mouth organ. <laughs> and if all those Beatles would want to do that, I would also be ready as soon as they are, whoever they might be. And it'd be great. That's the problem. That's the hang-up. But what a great idea I've had about how to <laughs> overcome overcome that hang-up. That's a stroke of genius, John. Yeah, it really is. Yeah, but what about the Beatles altogether uh, as a group? Soon as they're ready, you know, we had half the Beatles on again <laughs> at the Lyceum Ballroom. Uh, it should be like that, you know. If we were doing that and all the Beatles wanted to come, it'd be great. Then there'd be no great thing about oh the Beatles are coming back on stage and look, playing isn't the hang-up it's going on as the Beatles that's yeah. the, the problem for us yeah. yeah like what would possibly be his motivation to say that other than as an overture to Paul yeah in a way of saying I'm sorry I said you were daft for suggesting this <laughs> I, I didn't mean it it's a good idea and we should do it and we will do it as soon as you get your stupid ass back in <laughs> <laughs> yeah that thing about saying it was daft maybe he's kind of thinking 
okay, well, maybe it was the divorce. Was it the divorce thing? I'm sorry, Paul. I didn't mean the divorce thing. Also, oh, maybe you were offended that I called you daft. I'm sorry, but you're not daft. Like maybe he's thinking like, what is it about what I said that upset him the most? I'm just going to cover all the bases. And again, like you said, he's not saying... That's what I'm going to do with Plastic Ono Band because I really am just tired of all this pressure as a Beatle. If I do it as Plastic Ono Band, maybe it won't be such a big deal and it'll be easier. And um, this is just what I have to do from now on. He literally says, this is what the Beatles should do next. And he's ready as soon as they're ready. Yeah. If that's not persuasive enough. (laughs) We have more. Are you, in fact, going your own way with Yoko these days? Because that is the impression one has. Well, each Beatle's going, thing. doing his own thing at the moment, you know, and it's like a, it could be a rebirth or a death, you know, and we'll see what it is, you know, but it'll probably be a rebirth, you know, for all of us. <laughs> John was always putting it in these terms, like he's really enamored with the idea of starting over going back and doing it again, pushing it up the hill again, Mm -hmm. rebirth. It really, really means something to him. It's not just continuing on. It's always starting over, doing it again. And I'm not exactly sure why, but it's very consistent. Well, I think it's also the idea that like they've hit rock bottom maybe that that's part of it too because yep none of those are like let's just keep treading water you know like i said it's not squeezing out a couple more hits it's yeah we hit the bottom and now we're, we have to start again that's but what... the upside of that is that things are going to be different now right and that's wise of him yes maybe that's part of why john might feel he has to be adamant on the this has to be a new start with Paul because he knows that Paul's inclination if he comes back would probably be to sort of sweep it under the rug and John knows that that will not work if we're right about that is that because it's his own way of kind of trying to uh not wriggle out of the divorce statement but just sort of uh justify to himself why he put it in those terms in the first place or yeah. is this just his mindset is he really spiritually well, attached to this rebirth um, metaphor or whatever? I think it's maybe both. One way that he could refine it to himself is that, well, it's the death of this thing. Mm-hmm. But, it, yep. but there's a way forward to where we don't have to lose each other. If John was looking for a way to accept the death of what was or the death of the original dream and then move past it while still drawing meaning from it. He could reframe this as a death of the old relationship and propose a rebirth or a new phase of the relationship. And of course that idea of rebirth tracks also with Derek Taylor's statement to the Sunday paper in July of 1970, if Paul were to approach John and say, let's do it together again, He probably would. With no more words, he probably would do it. I'm going to continue to read that at every opportunity (laughs) until it penetrates. (laughs) That's what she said. 
<laughs> with no more words. How about that? You don't Just even like, have to. You don't even have to apologize. Explain Paul. yourself. You don't nothing. have to explain yourself. Just just come and ask just go just go look at him just go lay those eyes on him yes basically yes touch his elbow that's all just just do it paul (laughs) god damn it yes yeah paul he's already yours just go claim him please that's exactly how john green quotes john too Mm -hmm. right when john says that he was touched that paul asked him not to say anything to the public in the divorce meeting he thought that meant that paul would come back to him and they'd start all over again yes yeah yeah it's the first time this situation has ever arisen isn't it well let's say before sergeant pepper there was nine months of nothing so in between our albums now there's a lot of there's a lot of stuff going on that's all there might be nine months or a year before we decide to that we are interested enough to produce that thing called the Beatles album, you know. But there was nine months before Sergeant Pepper, and it's only been since September since we worked together. Yes. Yeah. So let's talk about nine months. Yeah. So that's not true. <laughs> right. That it was. There was not nine months of nothing before Pepper. His point is valid. That there. Yes. A year between albums is not absurd. I agree. But it seems like he's kind of trying to convince himself a little bit that (laughs) this is just business as usual, just like Pepper. Yeah. And look how great that turned out. Yep. And Paul loved making that one. I'm sure he'll love making the next one just as much. Yeah. And also he, you know, he might be talking himself into like that break was good for us. We came out of it better. That nine month break. (laughs) <laughs> yeah that nine months that was okay so they stopped touring at the end of august and they went back to the studio in november <laughs> so i'm not great at math how many months is that <laughs> okay it is more than one but less than three yeah less than three so you, he's less- off by 300 <laughs> percent. let's just say that <laughs> it felt like cute. carrying a baby to him I mean, yes, it did take nine months to conceive, write, record, produce, and release Sergeant Pepper. So, but it wasn't like nine months no. of nothing before. He said before, but like right, before right, right. we went into the studio. So, well, if he's comparing between release dates, then if they're following the Pepper model, well, they, that's, would, they would be in yes. the studio working on it. Something else that makes Sergeant Pepper an interesting point of reference. I've actually seen people refer to the fall of 1966 as a trial separation for the Beatles. Um, so to make the obvious point, if John is comparing their current situation, consciously or unconsciously, with the fall of 1966, we know how that trial separation turned out, right? Yes, yes they they came back stronger than ever and reinvented themselves yes like a phoenix from the flames yes made and became yes and became made the most influential yes album of all time yeah so if john is referencing that that doesn't mean that he thinks it's about to end that means he thinks they're on the cusp of something even greater 
Well, and what a great way to appeal to Paul because mm. we know that it's his baby, Sergeant Pepper, and it's like the happiest yeah. period of his life, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that was a high point for him on all mm-hmm. levels, you know? So, and by the way, just to be clear, when when John and Paul took a break from each other, that was for less than three months. And they hooked up in the middle for a weekend in Paris. So, I mean, as trial separations go, that one was pretty... <laughs> a failure <laughs> or success i don't know <laughs> but if john is making the point that this is just like that you know yes we know for a fact that john said he didn't meet anyone he liked as much as the Beatles, <laughs> and had never been so happy to see them again so th- that could certainly be a signal that like okay i'm done with the break whenever right. you're ready i'm ready to get back together which is what he says Yes. Yep. Oh I'm ready for our triumphant reunion. <laughs> Start growing the mustache, Paul. <laughs> Do you care about making another one? Yeah, I think Beatles is a, a good communication media, you know, and I wouldn't destroy it out of hand or dissolve it out of hand, you know. So that's what I think about Beatles. The main reason I asked you that, John, is because there have been so many rumours going around about, you know, Beatles having had rows and there being friction that you're not talking to Paul and Paul's not talking to you. Well, I wrote him. I wrote all the Beatles about 20 postcards from Denmark to keep in touch with them. I didn't talk on the. I think I talked to George on the phone only about some business or something. But I was on holiday. I just sent them love, you know, through postcards, and we communicate like that, you know, when we're not actually physically together. I wouldn't destroy it out of hand or dissolve it out of hand. Oh, John. I mean, my interpretation is that he he means (laughs) (laughs) I wanted a break, not a breakup. I do not want to destroy the band. Um, And I certainly would not destroy it with some bullshit I said when I was riding high (laughs) off of the buzz of Toronto. Mm. And saying I wouldn't destroy it out of hand, I think also implies like I wouldn't just blurt it out once at a meeting. And that's it. You know, like if sure we were to destroy the band, obviously, Paul, we would need to. <laughs> there would need to be more words said. Yes. Like we'd need to discuss <laughs> it and make a plan and stuff like oh. that. I'm not, I'm not just going to yes. snap my fingers and the band's over. Mm-hmm. It's kind of weird that you haven't talk to me since then yeah it really does feel like he doesn't understand the power of his words or 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 just that he maybe he underestimated the power of underestimates yeah yeah Yeah. or dissolve it i love that he he says it twice he's like i wouldn't in a fit of rage smash it into pieces okay but i also wouldn't well dissolve is interesting too because dissolve is more like a legal term Mm-hmm. dissolve is just like yeah like i liquidated the band <laughs> right know? yeah and it's it's not even exactly an answer to the question he got the question was mm. do you care about making another album and john mm. says yeah i wouldn't destroy the band mm. you know it's a little bit you know i think he's looking for a way to put it out there oh for sure he's getting his talking points in even if the question was, you know, are you guys, are you guys breaking up? The answer to that is still not, yeah, I wouldn't destroy it. 
takes the onus onto himself. I wouldn't destroy it. I wouldn't dissolve it. Tells me he is talking to Paul. Because no one, the interviewer has not accused him of destroying the band. That's, yeah. that's what Paul is thinking John has done. Yeah, you're right. He said, the question is, would you, do you care about making another album? <laughs> well, I certainly wouldn't explode the band. <laughs> well, I certainly wouldn't do something stupid like say, I quit yes. <laughs> while we're signing a new contract. I mean, come on, who does that? <laughs> yes. And then David Wig surprisingly gets right to the issue and he's like, bro, I've heard that you and Paul are not talking. What's up with that? Mm-hmm. Well, I wrote, him, the end of the I wrote all the Beatles about 20 postcards from Denmark. So is that just John exaggerating or did he send Paul multiple postcards? I think that's his way of saying I sent more than one. Yes. I mean, there could be others that never reached Paul. Well, that's true. Yeah. Or Paul could be squirreling them away. John sent me a drawing of a squirrel, and I know what that means, but you don't understand you don't. what it means. And you don't so need you don't. to know. That's right. If John draws a cat with an umbrella, that means he's sad. <laughs> if the cat is in boots, it means let's go on tour. Yeah. <laughs> if the cat is playing with yarn, that means fuck you. <laughs> I just sent them love, you know, th through postcards, and we communicate like that, you know, when we're not actually physically together. It's kind of sweet because it sort of implies that they are together in other ways, <laughs> other metaphysical yep. ways. And, the, you know, that is on brand for them, too, for him to say, like, look, we communicate in lots of different ways. <laughs> it doesn't matter if we're not physically together. We can. We still find ways to talk to each other and communicate to each other, mm -hmm. which is true. I think I talked to George on the phone only about some business or something. Only it was only about business. Why does he say that? I mean, I don't. Yeah, I don't think it's a dig at George. I think he's saying yeah. to Paul, like, I don't love him yes. more than you. <laughs> yes, exactly. Yes, I think that's exactly what he's saying. And it's such a tiny thing. And maybe we're overthinking it. But, but well, it's... I didn't think about it very hard. That's a great surface read. Hey, Paul, look, I'm telling this person that we all love each other. In fact, I just talked with George, who's also a Beatle, who I love. Not that I love him more than Paul. It was just business, <laughs> by the way. Okay, like, John. Why are, why are you downplaying the conversation in the middle of telling this person how you all still stay in touch? Why do you think rumours like this start? Because uh, there was a lot of tension around the Alan Klein coming in days and all that, you know, and, uh, and the ATV thing going on, you know. The, we, we were, the Beatles were under a lot of pressure, and we had to be together all the time, fighting and arguing and listening to all these different business things. And so we're taking a break from each other, like we always did after a tour ending up. Business thing was like a heavy tour. You know? In it, we made Get Back and Abbey Road and a couple of singles, and under a great strain, you know, of doing that business. And so now we're just taking a break from each other. You know? John is really leaning into this taking a break thing now. <laughs> <laughs> and yes, naysayers can still insist that John is lying, but there's no denying that his tone and message have changed yeah now it's not the bitter and edgy i go on and off from december now it's hopeful it's mm -hmm. positive and john has shifted into repair mode or rebirth mode if you will <laughs> 
Yeah, exactly. To actually advocate for what John is uh, yes. pushing here. <laughs> this was a temporary setback, Paul. Nothing we can't handle. Nothing we haven't been through before. We're taking a break. And that's fine. Mm-hmm. But a few months ago, John was saying, you know, who knows if we'll continue? And I go on and off. And, and now it's we're just taking a break. Yeah. So he's trying to distance himself from the Beatles. He's not doing a good job. <laughs> yeah, if he's trying to let the world down easy, let the hammer <laughs> fall by degrees, then, <laughs> then he's going in the wrong direction. The wrong direction, yes. <laughs> so do, do you think it's unlikely that you will be making another uh, track with the Beatles? Recording no, I don't again think, with the Beatles? I, I can't, see, you can't pin me down because I haven't got, there's no, I've, it's, completely open whether we do it or not you know his whole life is it's my life is like that whether i make another plastic ono album or lennon album or anything is open you know i don't like to prejudge it and i've no idea when if the beatles are working together again or not you know i never did have no. you know it was always open you know if somebody didn't feel like it that's it you know and maybe if one of us starts it off the others will all come around and make an album you know it's just like that at the moment what is this bullshit about like if one of us started off, then the others might come around and make an album. Yes. Mm. Yeah. If one of us, why can't that one of you be you, John? Yeah. If one of us, meaning the guy whose job it is. That's right. <laughs> and the guy who's standing in the way of this happening. Yeah. If like, say, for instance, that guy was to do his usual job and give us all a call and make us come into the studio like we've been complaining about for the past year yes (laughs) and beating him over the head maybe (laughs) that's right i don't know why he's not doing it i mean that's right and if he did maybe we would what more (laughs) enticing of an offer (laughs) can we (laughs) exactly wow what a baby (laughs) get over yourself paul I already said things. that maybe yes. we would do it if you begged us. That's so. right. <laughs> Get on your knees then. Chop, chop. We're wasting daylight here. In 1964, I produced a book and five. I produced another one. They were asking me that then, you know. And why should I not write a book? You know, the Beatles wanted me to do it. They want me to do these LPs. You know, they, they have nothing. If I want George to produce and record any records he wants to we still it doesn't interfere with Beatles time i use my own time to do other things you know and so do they you know but we the beatles will remain there's no doubt about that and we'll i'm fed up with saying they've been saying it since she loves you you know we're together and that's it we're together and that's it he's like issuing a decree now he's like yes i'm not even yes i'm not entertaining this anymore I'm fuck it at this point I'm going out on a limb we're together that's it I don't want to talk about it anymore mm-hmm. this one to me he sounds tired and defeated well he's not qualifying it anymore he's not, he's not making any eff- any effort to like <sighs> explain or justify or rationalize he's just like Mm-mm. yeah I hereby decree we will be together for all time no doubt about it yeah and that's it you know again if he was just saying this for bullshit reasons i feel like he would say it with more confidence (laughs) 
I think he's just like, I want this stalemate to be over. Maybe he's starting to worry that he's lost. Here's a snippet from a published interview with Roy Shipston for Disc and Music Echo, dated February 28th. We don't have audio for this one, so we're going to read it. Question, when did you last see Paul? John says, about two months ago. I keep meaning to go and see him. We write a lot. We're always sending postcards from all over the place. I'd like to see him this week. I see Ringo and George almost every other day because they're usually here at Apple, but Paul hasn't been here for ages. Question, why do you think he has lost interest in Apple? John, that's what I want to ask him. We had a heavy scene last year as far as business was concerned, and Paul got a bit fed up with all the effort of business. I think that's all it is. I hope so. I think that's all it is. I hope so. Oh, that is making me sad. Right? That really gets me because I do think he's sincere. I do too. Yeah, it's he's saying to Paul, I don't know what you're feeling right now, but I hope this is just about business because business doesn't mean anything. Business is nothing. And I think he's pretty clearly saying in these clips, I still love you. He said, I just sent them love. We communicate like that when we're not physically together. How sweet is that? It's darling. We communicate like that when we're not physically together. I just sent them love. I still love you. Oh, John, your tiny, precious heart. But you smashed Paul's tiny, precious heart. How can you think it's okay? Yeah, I mean, I think he's, oh, yeah, I don't know if he had, maybe, yeah, I don't know if it would have made a difference if he would have gone and said it in person or, he's trying though, he's trying. He is trying. All right, here's the other snippet. Question, is the plastic Ono band more important to you than the Beatles? John. I don't think anything is more important than anything else. That sounds a bit mad. Do you, you know what I mean? Overall, no one thing is more important than the other. Then which do you prefer playing with? It depends. It depends on whoever is around. Sometimes Plastic Ona Band sessions are great. Sometimes they're a drag. Sessions with the Beatles can be a drag, but they can be great too. Just yourself and a tape recorder can be good and boring as well. Question. So what is the state of the Beatles? Are they split or not? John, we're going through changes. The thing is that we change in public. It's a menopause or something like that. Menopause is a bit different, but it's the same theme. <laughs> that this is a phase <laughs> rather than an end. It's a rebirth. Oh my gosh. And yes. menopause also fits with his theme of being the mature phase of the relationship. Yes, it does. It sure does. Rebirth, karma, destiny perseverance through the natural cycles of love the ongoing potential of relationships to endure and rejuvenate including into that mature retirement phase these concepts are all tied together in john's mind and they all come into play when he's talking to paul as in instant karma and all these early 1970 quotes and when he's talking about paul as in the quotes from 1980 
when he's consistent about something you know it means well, a lot it means yeah, something right, right. to him for sure yeah because as we yeah. know there are many times when john just says stuff does random things yeah exactly yes yeah right so if he says something one time it might not be significant we might be reading right. into it or whatever but you can't like we're not reading into like 10 different things but all say right. exactly the same thing exactly Needless to say, Paul does not bite. I wish we could say for sure where Paul's head was in this moment. But the problem is that, with the exception of the Life magazine piece, Paul was silent for six months. Six months! So we don't have anything contemporaneous to offer, other than the McCartney album, for whatever that's worth, um, to try to gauge where Paul's head is at. We have to assume, then, he was either tuning John out completely, or if he was listening, he just refused to believe anything that John was saying. You know, for the record, Paul McCartney has completely maintained from day one that John meant that shit in the divorce statement and never changed his mind. And you right. will not find a quote other than the ones that we talked about, you know? Right. You won't find any statements from paul mccartney that suggest that john didn't mean it you know and that the onus was on him to just make a small gesture that would have fixed everything he's never going to say that nope and many years from now is adamant <laughs> that john was totally done in fact miles quotes parts of the december 13th nme interview and he's like yeah, uh, reading these totally gives the impression that John wants to work things out and that he's open to negotiating, but it's all a big fat fucking lie because John uh -huh. is a big fat fucking liar. Right. And all everything he said between September and April is complete lies and 100% garbage. Like they are very, very yeah. firm on that in many years mm -hmm. from now. One of the issues is that they've argued this in court and Paul got a judgment in his favor so i think on you know part of it is there they can't i mean i don't think anybody's going to take paul to court over it and be like you perjured yourself you know i really don't but <laughs> no. at the same time i do feel like there is probably a desire on paul's part to be consistent in what his story is and has been since the beginning of course yeah so he is going to stay steadfast in that he believed that John quit on September 20th and that it was non-negotiable after that point. Mm -hmm. All the stuff that we're talking about in here is all bullshit and lies. And if you find that convincing, then that's fine. We're making the case otherwise, because that's if what we think. And I can definitely see how from... From Paul's perspective, especially at the time, why should he believe any of these overtures that John is making? If immediately after the public breakup, John goes nuclear and blames everything on Paul, first in Lennon remembers, and then in court, yeah. why should he believe him? Exactly. Then, then Paul's like, you know what? 
babe, you're not going to have your cake and fucking eat it too. Like, I'm not going to go out in public and defend you and be like, oh, poor John, his feelings Mm -hmm. were hurt and he really just needed love. And I'm such a bastard that I couldn't provide it. He's going to be like, no, fuck you. You want to die on this hill? you know you started the band and now you're ending it like you're such a hard liner exactly like if that's when the you- hard line that you want to take <laughs> then you have to take the heat that yeah. comes with it too so exactly. if you're going to do that then that means that you're a big fat fucking liar mm-hmm. and everything that came out of your mouth from 70 to 72 is fucking horse shit yeah also if we're talking about the beatles industry of books and other products and whatever that shows no real compassion for Paul's feelings or point of view in the divorce meeting and no respect for the depth and mutual importance of his personal relationship with John. Why would Paul say, yes, I had the power to take John back if I approached him and asked after he humiliated and devastated me? Like, just the expectation that Paul should have done that is demeaning and insulting. Yes. And we're not saying Paul should or shouldn't have done it. We're not judging his decision. The point is that that is his decision to make. And we shouldn't just expect Paul to take that kind of emotional abuse as if that's just part of his job. Which is absolutely how it's all framed. So if if that's the toxic environment of the narrative producing Beatles industry that Paul's up against, which for the most part, it still is. I mean, things are definitely changing, especially like the more and more women who enter the field. But like, if that's the attitude that Paul's coming up against, why the fuck would he say anything other than John quit? And that was the end of it. Whenever he tries to tell his side of things he always gets called defensive or overly emotional or that he is trying to rewrite history putting this on paul's shoulders as if it's his job to go clean up this mess is asking him to come and beg for his job back after being dressed down and fired in front of the board of directors not only is he supposed to come and beg for his job back he's also supposed to take like a pay cut please please take me back with a pay cut why should he have to do that like a why should he tolerate that kind of treatment and then also like it would be one thing if people presented both sides in the narrative that is what you should do like that's we're doing on this podcast like we just spent a lot of time on john's point of view and I think his point of view should be represented just as I think Paul's point of view has to be equally represented. Like we should see things from both sides. Well, and even, I mean, in terms of why post breakup, Paul frames everything the way he does, even if he wanted to tell us he can't like he can't his hands are tied even if yeah his hands are tied if he were to say i know john told you all that he didn't want me anymore and wanted to break up and that he fired me but really people what you have to understand is that 
John loved me. Everyone loves me so much. It drives them crazy and they have to pretend like they didn't want me and have to pretend like they were the ones who dumped me. But it's really me. I always have the control in every relationship. Come on. That, <laughs> there's, he cannot say that. Well, that's right. And like, you can't argue that Paul had the power to fix everything if he wasn't such a little bitch, but at the same time, argue John didn't want him back. You have to reconcile those two things. John is saying right here, it's up to you. He's putting the, the ball in Paul's court. You can see where that's a kind of complicated balance of power there. Because John is like, okay, I set this bullshit in motion when I said I want a divorce, but in case it's not fucking clear enough, Paul, I want you to come back and I want you to fight. You know, I want to start over, but you have to come and tell me you want it too. Right. It's totally reasonable of John <sighs> to want like... some validation. Yes. <laughs> that was a little much me saying i want a divorce i understand now that was that was too much too much for you can't you let me save some face here is that too much to ask come on i fly off the handle i say things yeah but you know what on the other hand maybe john wanting paul to come back wasn't enough yeah that is a possibility that you know sure as foreign as that idea is to the uh the you know beetle bro conglomerate mm -hmm. maybe it wasn't as enticing or flattering as they seem to think just because john wanted paul to come back if john and george are in mean girl mode uh, you know bolstered and empowered by alan klein how and why would that appeal to paul Right. He might want what the Beatles were. Right. But he might not want what the Beatles are now. Exactly. Don't get me wrong. <laughs> <laughs> I believe John truly loved Paul and cared about their partnership. We just showed a plethora of evidence that John thinks of them as spiritually destined. <laughs> yes. Soulmates, cosmically linked, romantic very Twins. very sweet stuff it's profoundly important to him and i believe that john thinks of himself as the champion of their relationship at this point he's the defender of of john and paul right he's the one advocating mm -hmm. we're gonna be reborn and get into that next phase come on paul when he said in 1980 you can either give up halfway up the hill or start all over again and you can either give up halfway up the hill and say, I don't want to climb this mountain, it's too tough, or I'm going to go back to the bottom and start again. I don't think he sees himself as the one who gave up. I don't think John thinks right. he's the deserter or the one who abandoned Paul. I think he feels like the hero. But he's a hero who thinks the ends justify the means. And so, again, from Paul's perspective, that's not enticing right which is like okay for example the stunt that they pull at the end of 1970 where they try to get paul into the studio okay this stunt was mastermind by klein to undercut 
Paul's lawsuit, okay? Or his ability to extract himself for the Beatles, right? Yeah. Um, if Paul comes in on a Beatles session, he forfeits he, right, his exactly. right to, yeah. However, I think that John goes along with it because he's like, oh, great. Could that trap Paul? That's fine. Like, I, I don't think John's thinking like, I'm going to trick him into thinking I still want to be with him. I think he's just like, will it work? Okay, great. Like, as right. long as, as long as Paul is in the shoebox, that's as far as John is thinking. Um, I agree. Yeah. If he's in there, good. Then he'll be close to me. And then maybe I can fucking talk to him. Exactly. And he'll see that he's being ridiculous. Yes. I don't think he's going to like close the shoebox and then be like, ha ha, McCartney, fuck you, bitch. <laughs> now I'm throwing you in the river. <laughs> no. I think he's That's just like, like a little kid. Him. Yeah. When they, they love like an animal so much and then they put it yeah. in a box or something. He's like, stop, you can't do that. Let him go. <laughs> he's like but yeah. i love him you know that's exactly how john describes himself when he oh says you God. love someone sometimes you want to possess them to death oh my god you're right Me meaning i don't think that john desires to kill to kill paul the people he loves i'm saying that <laughs> right i'm saying that he will go too far in order to keep someone he will damage that person he's willing to damage that person Yes, you're brilliant because John actually used the same exact analogy. He said, I used to like to put my woman in a little box. Yes. Yeah. That's, weird. Just, it's that's not, just how uh... he is. Again, we're not trying to assassinate his character. We're just like, this is literally how he is by his own admission. It is. Most people's brains, they would say, there is no way that John would do something like that, Paul, in order to keep him because he must know that if he traps Paul in a box, Box Paul is not going to be happy with him and is not going to love him back. That's, that is correct. That is a good worldview to have. John doesn't have that worldview. John would rather have an angry Paul in a box than a happy Paul roaming free. Yeah, I agree. Yes. Yeah, because at least he would be close. And also I think John- I can bring him around. Yes. He'll come around. Right. He's like, if I have oh. to put him in a cage to get him to fucking listen to me, so be it. So <laughs> be it. Yeah. Yes. If he stops running away, I will be able mm -hmm. to show him that I have good intentions. Yes. And then he will love me. He's, then he will see that we're meant to be together. <laughs> <laughs> Possess them to death. Yeah. Actual quote. When you actually are in love with somebody, you tend to be jealous and want to own them and possess them 100%, which I do. But intellectually, before that, when I thought, right, you know, I mean, that owning a person is, is rubbish. But uh, that's the danger, is that you want to possess them to death. Because you have so little as a child, I think it is. You, you, when, once you find it, you want to hang on to it. You grab it so much, you tend to kill it. Yes. So, you know, and again, we've lived with like heteronormative bullshit for so long that people are like, well, that couldn't possibly apply to Oh my Paul God, I didn't. Because he said women and Paul's uh, not I, women. I didn't even think about that. Because it's there stupid. Are who are gonna say that. It's so stupid. I mean, if Paul is one of his relationships, which, you know, which he is, like, stop playing. Of course yeah. he is. Yep. And it applies to him as well john's mo with his uh female 
relationships is going to be the same as his as it is it will be with paul it's not he's not going to change it not how it works you just are the person you are well and we have a quote from john regarding the song jealous guy interestingly where he does specifically include males in the equation oh my god he says i was a very possessive jealous guy and the lyrics explain that pretty clearly not just jealous toward yoko but towards everything male and female incredibly possessive thank you john there we go thank you for clearing that issue up And I don't mind championing John and his point of view and trying to see the delicate and tender feelings and fragile ego behind his behavior. But that doesn't mean that he always treated Paul right. And it doesn't mean that Paul had to take that from him. If he got done with that, then he got done with that. At this point, I think John is like a combination of frustrated, hurt, confused, and he's just trying anything in his bag of tricks to lure Paul back. But he's not getting what he wants. No. And unfortunately, John has some really bad behavior patterns when his feelings are hurt. Yes, to put it mildly. We mentioned John scaling the security wall at Cavendish. That's a real thing. That's a real photo. It is a yes. real thing that happened. Mm-hmm. And we talked in the last episode about Paul using a fake name so John couldn't track him down at Apple. Okay. And we just shared two instances of John threatening to show up at Cavendish in print and over the airwaves. And as we'll discuss in episode four, John's behavior is about to escalate again. Yeah. So, you know, to recap, John is reaching out through the mail, through song, through the radio and through magazines and yet paul is treating him like he's poison and and i don't think it's because paul is physically afraid of john like there is no record anywhere ever of any violence between john and paul yeah in fact paul has gone on record more than once denying that they ever physically fought yes and actually john said something similar in um lennon remembers or saint regis like in 1970 said the same thing they never really had any physical fights but we do know that john's behavior actually gets worse over the next year and a half like there's lennon remembers there's that melody maker letter there's how Mm -hmm. do you sleep and he even throws a brick through paul's window in 1971 like we're not exaggerating about this right let let that sink in for a second those are the things we know about yeah so although there's no doubt in my mind that paul loves john and that he still loves him in 1970 i do think that he's probably telling himself don't get sucked back into this shit again absolutely and no doubt linda would be co-signing that sentiment absolutely like paul you you have two children to think about now well and just as a reality check like paul this is not normal this is not how friends behave 
Yes, that too. They've been so insular and so like in their own little bubble where (laughs) all of their dysfunctions, you know, they fly under the radar because they're so used to them, just like any any relationship really any dynamic that's unhealthy in any way if it's entrenched you don't see it anymore and sometimes a third party can offer some insight yeah i mean lit has got a first class seat yes and yoko for that matter i mean like those two true (laughs) i mean besides maybe george harrison (laughs) You know they've got the 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 worst slash best view of right? all this insanity. <laughs> yes, <laughs> and I'm not saying this is one sided either. Like to a certain extent, it takes two to tango. Like I'm not trying to blame the victim here or anything, but you know I'm sure that Paul could <laughs> be extra as well. You know, <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> um, my point is that breaking up with john lennon even if you believe john initiated it would be scary definitely john responds to rejection with rage and then john's going in the papers and calling paul aggressive you're the aggressor right you know paul's like i'm just trying to have a mental breakdown in peace seriously and paul's just like um can i get a restraining order please yeah it is not aggressive to file for divorce yeah it's really not like especially when the other person asked for it well and when you've been asking to do it out of the courts that's true you offered to do it out of court yeah yeah quickie you know whatever no fault divorce yeah exactly we can do this in arbitration right yeah but if you're not going to cooperate what the hell i mean there's no other option i'm sorry john the legal system needed to step in it did If John is coming from the point of view that Paul is being a baby and that Paul could not possibly seriously believe that John doesn't love him, they're meant to be. And here he is spelling it out in instant karma in the most dropping song titles way possible (laughs) so that Paul can't possibly miss it. Plus John is reaching out over the airwaves for the record offering to erase the divorce meeting (laughs) saying what a great idea it would be if the Beatles could perform without the pressures of being the Beatles yes and putting the ball in Paul's court I mean that whole it's up to you thing to me reveals that John is waiting for Paul to realize John didn't mean it and come back so that they can kiss and make up and figure out a way to be reborn a la sergeant pepper but from paul's point of view if he feels either insufficiently loved or loved but not treated with respect 
Mm-hmm. If all he can see in a future with John is more pain. I mean, John loved Cynthia at first. I mean, he was, re- you know, we've seen the That's letters the thing. he sent. Yeah. He, you know, he showered her with love in the beginning. And then it got to the point where horrible treatment stories yeah about like he pressured her into doing acid and then ignored her when she was tripping yeah yes john john can be very very cold and cruel yeah and if that's what paul sees coming down the pike then why is he gonna walk into that trap yeah well he must be doing a cost-benefit analysis at this time exactly and the thing is i think he is clear-eyed enough of all of the beatles i think paul is the one that's clear-eyed on we're gonna do our best work together you know it's gonna be hard to be this good once we leave because we don't have the four sides of the square or whatever you know like we do right contributing to each other and like he's right i mean time has has proved that he absolutely is right and this is a point I like to make wherever I can. Of the three songwriters, it is Paul McCartney who has put that into words multiple times. That's true. Neither John nor George ever said anything like that. They never even took the question, let alone took it over and over again like Paul and answered it multiple times, quite frankly, with, for example, a quote like this. I think it's actually lack of beetles that equals lack of bite, rather than just domesticity. The lack of great sounding boards like John, Ringo, and George. I think that's it, really. In response to an interview saying, so why is it that your solo work is not as good as your Beatles work? Jeez, that's harsh. Paul not only takes that question, but he's like, let's talk about that. (sighs) Wow. That's fucking impressive. Can I just say? That is impressive you know flack that paul gets for being an egomaniac again he's the only one to the point of paul being the last to leave well maybe that's not because paul loved the beatles the most you know maybe his ego never took that particular bong hit you know that made him think like oh i can't wait to dump these assholes and really shine as you know (laughs) paul mccartney the big man i mean this is the guy who goes on to outsell the, all of them and again this isn't to blame you know the other guys for the failure of the band paul's is responsible for the failure of the band is any of them yeah we're just talking about perspectives here exactly exactly however once the environment changes to a situation of distrust and extremely hurtful behaviors and you know manipulative behaviors and and whatever it's easy to see why paul doesn't think that there's enough to go back to yeah even if paul is not 100 percent sure that he doesn't want to come back you know like even if he mm-hmm. is leaving some room for maybe at some point yeah he's both acting like and speaking like he knows what the right decision is going to be technically he did not announce the breakup in the mccartney album press release technically he didn't say i quit the band right Mm -hmm. 
he literally says time will tell I mean, he definitely leaves the door open in that press release mm-hmm. however um it's hard to argue that he didn't know what was gonna happen yeah even if let's say by the end of february let's say paul's heard this single the ice starts to melt a little bit or whatever and sure. he reads all these interviews from john and he's like oh john yeah all right so it sounds like he wants me to come back i'm not fucking going back to him he can come to me and he's like sure fucking whatever but he let's can say- come and assure me that he understands now what he put me through and he can give me some sort of assurance that he's not going to pull this again. Comes back and comes correct. Yeah. Then we'll see. Maybe maybe he even gets that far where he's like, we'll see. We'll see what happens if he, yeah. you know, plays his cards right. Yeah. yeah. So otherwise, he- otherwise, if John does something extreme mm-hmm. and it works for him, he's going to uh, do it uh, again. Right, right, right. I'm encouraging that behavior, right? Yes. Yeah, exactly. And Paul's a new dad now. Maybe he's starting to think like, well, "Hmm." I can't do this again. Well, I can't reward that behavior. Yeah, exactly. I'm going to continue the cycle. Like maybe he's like, I got to stop this. Yeah, I can't. I can't go through this again. But even if he were, even if Paul was on the fence, okay, at the, let's Mm -hmm. say the end of February, the beginning of March or something, he doesn't make a move. And maybe while he's sitting on it, John's getting more and more impatient because within a few weeks john starts trying to smoke paul out now he goes after the music yes now he starts to hit paul where it really matters he's like this isn't enough i will start taking away the things that are dear to you sure (laughs) you're gonna come out and talk to me one way or another yeah interesting masters i have the acetates right here Hmm. Interesting. Interesting. Sure, be a shame if something were to happen to them. <laughs> you want to do something about it? You know where I am. <laughs> All right. Thank you for listening to another con of mind. Join us for episode four, where John once again raises the stakes by a lot. Backed by Alan Klein, George, and Ringo. John begins a guerrilla campaign to force Paul's hand and drive him out of hiding. Paul keeps his head down as he finishes up his debut solo album when Phil Spector is suddenly enlisted to remix the Let It Be tapes to George Martin's eternal consternation. Alan Klein and the other Beatles move the McCartney release date without Paul's consent. And Paul reacts like a cornered animal. The Beatles relent and give Paul back his original release date. And Paul finally calls John and they talk for the first time since the divorce meeting in September. The McCartney album is released the following day, but surprise! (laughs) It includes some unexpected news about the state of the Beatles. It's a wild roller coaster, <laughs> shit show of miscommunication, posturing, dick measuring, <laughs> wounded feelings that all ends in tears. A bring lot a of, drink is what we're saying. Yes, <laughs> bring a drink and listen to two stupid people who love each other very, very much. Oh, <laughs> I love you too, Phoebe. <laughs> <laughs> 
I'm sorry. <laughs> John is just so obsessed with Paul. <laughs> it's just absurd. <laughs> it's gonna be a good one you don't want to miss it you really really don't if you enjoy us please show your appreciation by writing us a positive rating and or review on itunes follow us on all the social media <laughs> you're smart i'm stoned <laughs> this is now the daphne podcast <laughs> Thanks, Phoebe. Thanks for the memories. Uh, <laughs> Phoebe is dead. <laughs> Beautiful. Yes, put it in. Yeah, that's what she said. <laughs> and again, we have the like birth thing because he's comparing. Jesus Christ, that's right. Right? <laughs> okay. Who's more obsessed with wombs, Paul or John? Quick survey. Listeners vote in the <laughs> vote in the comments. And people can at me about the me the true meaning of Tolkien's work if they want to. <laughs> I can be like, yes, I understand it was an offhand comment. We will get mail about it. <laughs> you don't understand, Tolkien. I remember John said he was jealous that somebody else got to birth Yoko. Yes. He's like, if I had tits, I would love to feed Yoko with them. said question this if you got i don't know what the right phrase is back together now what would be the nature of it john said john said well it's like saying if you were back what the right phrase is back together now what would be the nature of it and john says well it's like saying <laughs> 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 <laughs>